Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. How you been, man? I'm doing all right, you? Hanging in, hanging in there. That's the first time you've sat still for uh, longer than, uh, what, two days? And <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's good to be home for a while. I have a few weeks at home, so I'm really happy about that. Yeah. How long has it been since you've done a plane selfie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did the last one on Sunday, and I knew it would be the last one for probably seven weeks. Yeah. So this, I think, may be the longest stretch since 1995 that I've been home without uh home straight seven weeks so um oh my gosh yeah I'm pretty happy about that and you just got back from where was it uh Korea yeah South Korea and you were judging out there right and playing yeah it was uh I played uh, a couple things it was uh Spanish brass was there oh yeah they had uh yeah they did three concerts and the first one was just them it was their uh 30th anniversary celebration concert and uh i i played with them as a kind of a guest soloist on a, on a piece for that and um then they had the final concert of the festival and i played with eric oba and uh taiwanese trumpet player uh shu han ye and um yeah, and then uh, we were adjudicating a competition. Then I did a thing, uh, let's see, Saturday. I went to Seoul, did a thing for Yamaha Korea. Uh, did a kind of a small performance and a workshop with a bunch of trumpet players, and I came home Sunday. So how does that work when you uh, when you perform with a group like Spanish Brass? Is that, a, is that an improv thing, or is that a solo thing that you work out? Uh, and get a chance to rehearse well ahead of time? Well, in this case, it was uh, kind of kind of both. Um, they wanted us to do this piece called Havanera uh, Tita, which is a, a song from Valencia, because they were kind of keeping the focus on, you know, their 
hometown area to celebrate their anniversary. And they had created this chart. They recorded the chart with uh, this amazing vocalist from the area. And, uh, but they also created a chart with an open blowing section. Um, so it was, um, you know, there was a melody. We got a chance to rehearse. It was pretty straightforward. And then, um, you know, there was an open blowing section for me to do. And then we wrapped up and it was, um, it was a lot of fun. So I'm trying to imagine, you know, how many choruses do you solo and, and, and the other guys back there are like, man, is he going to take like, you know, a 12th chorus on this? You <laughs> know, how, how many times can they uh, <laughs> keep going back there? You know? Yeah. Well, for that kind of thing, those guys aren't really jazz players, of course. So they, um, you know, we, we, we had a, predetermined form we did we figured out how many repeats beforehand and i mean they're amazing musicians and they can improvise but they weren't going to really treat it the way like a jazz combo would it was just like everybody just kind of blow and we'll just figure it out as we go so um but no it was a lot of fun man those guys are amazing and great great people so it's always uh great to be with them and then what about with eric what uh what'd you play with him um we did a couple of um sort of silly trumpet trio things. It was just sort of the, the final concert, the celebration concert, which was a pretty lighthearted. We did this thing, um, an arrangement of uh, trumpet blues and cantabile, the uh, um, Harry James thing. And so we were all switching different parts. I played lead on that one. And then we did this, um, oh, geez, what was this? It was a, a Spanish thing, and I'm spacing on the name of it, but Eric played lead on that one, and then we wrapped up with good old Bugler's Holiday. And, <laughs> no uh, yeah, and, and um, Shu Han Ye, uh, the Taiwanese uh, trumpet player, played lead on that one. So we all just switched off parts. And, yeah, we didn't get to choose a repertoire, unfortunately, so it was uh, but it was fun. You know, it was and to play anything. Both, both those guys are great, and Eric's been, you know, one of my heroes since I was a kid. And um, last time we did this festival, we did Arnold. We did um, we did Alan uh, Vizzuti's, uh duet version of Carnival of Venice together. Oh yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. So uh, any chance to play with Eric, I'm going to jump at it, of course, because he's he's amazing. So what about uh, the kind of talent you heard over there as a judge? Uh, the top level players were really high level. I mean, it was um, uh, there were. It was a nice international group of folks that made the finals. There was uh, uh, someone from Poland, someone from France, and from China, and from uh, Korea. And uh, very high level. And uh, yeah, it was very impressive, man. I was like, damn, I got to go back to this practice room here and these, and these young cats tear it up like this, you know? Yeah, so along that line, you find it uh, challenging to keep your chops in shape when you're doing stuff like this, you know, judging during the day and and then having to play uh, also. Um, no, it wasn't too bad. I I just, I mean, there was a room we could play in in the hotel, and I would just play in the hotel room at, at reasonable hours, and no one seemed to care with an open horn and. I remember Joe Alessi once told me, he's like, yeah, man, I just pull out the horn and play in the hotel room. And I'm like, well, 
I can't play anywhere near as loud as Joe. So if he can get away with it generally, <laughs> right. I might as well start doing that, you know? So it was, um, there was time to shed. The only really hard days were, uh, the first two days where we heard like, I think a total of 71 players. Yeah. And, um, so, but I had to play, I think it was just a second night or something. So I had to, um, you know, I had to be shedding either way to make sure I didn't make a fool of myself playing with Spanish brass. You know, I had to make sure that chops were in shape for that, but it's tough. I mean, it's, um, it's lots of times it's, it's the travel that makes it tough. It's, you know, it was probably, I don't know, a 24, 25 hour trip from Richmond to Newark, Newark to Tokyo, Tokyo to Seoul. Mm. And I, I noticed you don't put yourself in economy on these, uh, <laughs> these trips. There's, well, I always fly United and because I fly, you know, anywhere from a generally 120, 140,000 miles a year, I get uh, a lot of perks. So I can often upgrade myself to, um, um, to, to business class. And so that's, that's, that's what I do whenever possible for these long haul flights. Yeah. Well, I don't see how you could do it otherwise, man. I just, uh, you'd, you'd be, uh, you'd be hurting literally. Yeah, you'd be, exactly. You'd be hurting. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you're back in academia this week. Yep. Yep. And, uh, it's kind of out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's rare that I'm traveling right up until the day before the first faculty meeting. In fact, I missed the first faculty meeting. It was Friday. Oh, darn. Um, with yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, a music department meeting. And then there was a School of the Arts meeting on, on Monday. I made that. And then classes started Tuesday. We had auditions and all that kind of stuff. So we're in the middle of the madness. And, and um, you know, yeah, it's it's normal kind of start of the year chaos and we just you just kind of muscle through it you know how many years now at uh, vcu this is my 18th year at vcu no way yeah it's kind of uh that happened quickly it seems <laughs> yeah. yeah remind me are you tenured there yeah i'm i'm tenured in the rank of full professor i did not enjoy the process of applying for tenure or full professor but once it's over you, you breathe a sigh of relief you yeah know? These days, uh, it's an accomplishment no matter who you are, but uh, especially with uh, the whole adjunct thing going on, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, yeah. that's a rough process. You know, I mean, I, I would I would give anything to be on a tenure track. Yeah, that's the thing is I got to remind myself um, sometimes when I'm in, in most of the low points come in faculty meetings, frankly, but uh, that, uh, you know, not to take for granted that I'm, I'm pretty lucky to uh, to be in this situation. I mean, you know, this is a crazy business, and anything that gives us a, a sense of stability and and predictability into the finances and structure to our life is, is a good thing, you know. And so we, um, I wish it for all of my colleagues. You know, it's like the more more opportunities we can provide for each other, um, the the better. You know, it's it's um it's such a weird business, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, just thinking, and I wasn't trying to to call you on that. You know, I was just uh, I was lamenting the the woes of being an adjunct. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a crappy life. Hey, uh, I want to let you know I had actually been editing uh, through some videos that I had had from the uh, 2018 trumpet conference at the University of Indianapolis, 
and I was working through your masterclass video uh, just a couple of days ago. Oh, cool. And uh, you were talking about uh, jazz form and uh, jazz language and that sort of thing. And I realized I did the introduction to that masterclass and then I disappeared. And so oh. I, I was actually getting to enjoy it for the first time <laughs> the other oh, day. <laughs> and I was sitting there, I'm digging it. I'm like, man, I, this is really cool. You know, it was, it was like, man, he was really well said, uh, done in a way where I actually understood. You know, I'm, I'm not of a jazz mind. Thinking back to that, uh, that conference. And it was, it was just, it was a fun, it was a fun time, uh, you know, getting to, to work with you and, and play with you that weekend. Uh, yeah, I had a I had a blast, man. That was you know between you and Doc and all the folks there. It was uh, getting to see a lot of friends. Fred Powell. I mean, it was just um, you know it, it was really a blast. And uh, I I thank you again for having me, man. It was a real highlight of that season. You know? Well, you know, there's there have been a lot of really cool things that have transpired since then, and this podcast has actually been one of those things. And listeners will find out right now that actually we did an interview previously. Uh, you were actually like my eighth interview, <laughs> yeah. and it uh, it got corrupted. Uh, and I I was really proud of that interview because I thought we covered some really cool things. I yeah. had a great conversation, and um, that uh, was um that was we did that, that was at Ball Ball State, right? Yeah, in, we did it at Ball State in uh, Stephen Campbell's Stephen Campbell's office. Yeah, it was. Uh, That's right, and. A big uh, snowstorm. I mean, big, big, uh, big uh, cold snap was going on. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. A lot of, a lot of things were getting canceled that time of year. That too. Yeah, that's right. Because totally. Vinny DiMartino was supposed to go up to Fort Wayne, and uh, all kinds of things were were getting canceled. But uh, yeah, yeah, that interview got corrupted, and uh, so you're gracious enough to to give me this time again. But as as a result of that, um, you were my eighth interview there. But as a result of that. I think now this is going to come in at like number 47. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, but you helped me get uh, Sergey, And then since then, man, I've I've just been going gangbusters, uh, lining up the interviews and talking to someone. That's great, man. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Sergey is the kind of guy who, who he, he's so gracious, he would have um, he would have responded anyway. And, and um, sometimes having a little bit of that personal contact just makes it, a little easier, but I'm glad that worked out, man. That's that's he's a he's a lovely guy, and I'm glad you guys uh, had had some time together. Well, what I'm also realizing too is uh, there are a lot of people who are really just willing to sit down and chat, and it's it's pretty cool uh, to get a chance like you, just like you, um, when you're not busy. In fact, I, I was talking to uh, uh, Bob White, who you probably know from, uh, from Western Michigan. Yeah, exactly. I, I talked to him a couple of days ago, and of course, you guys uh, play together. I think now in uh, uh, Battle Creek, Battle right? Creek. Yeah, yeah. Bob's a great cat, man. Great yeah. player. And uh, he and I have a connection because of uh, well, he was in Indianapolis for a short time, you know, before he started oh. moving around and uh, ended up. Uh, up in Michigan, so you know yeah. we're all we're all connected somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. A small world for sure, man. Really Very small is. world. So, well, you know, speaking of Battle Creek, how did you get connected there? Um, you know, that went way back to, I think it was 1997. Um, it's funny that you say way back, and in 1997 is way back. I mean that's well, that's ridiculous. That's, that's twenty two years ago. Right? <laughs> I know. <It's> like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it, it's like um, I I was um, 
I'm, I'm pretty, I can't remember if it was 97 or 98, but it, it started as a project that was actually an offshoot of the Brass Band of Battle Creek. And they, they had this brass ensemble. So it was a smaller group, more like I think a 12 piece. It wasn't a British style brass band. And it was something that uh, Pat Sheridan, uh, tuba, tuba soloist um, had kind of spearheaded. And at the time they had um, a few of my heroes playing like, um, let's see, Morris Murphy was playing from the London Symphony. No kidding. Yeah, and Tim Morrison. And uh, Danny Barber, who's a wonderful, you know, lead commercial player. Well, he Chicago. just passed away, didn't he? Danny did. Yeah, I think so. Oh my God, I did. I had no idea. Uh, I may have to edit that out. I I thought I saw some stuff on Facebook just recently I mean, you, about you that. You could be right. I haven't been in touch with him in a while. Oh, geez. Okay, that's something else for me to wrap my brain around. But um, I used to play with Danny all the time in Chicago when I lived there. Um. And um, yeah, in fact, I think that news came down uh, while we were at ITG. That that long ago, I, man, no one mentioned to me. That's kind of bizarre. Well, yeah, Danny was on the group, and and um, apparently um, Hickman was playing too. Dave Hickman, and Hickman had some kind of a family emergency, and Pat suggested they uh, call me to play. It was kind of a last minute thing, and I didn't know those guys at all, and. But um, yeah, that that was basically the first time I did anything with the group, and and um, so they kind of kept my name on hand as a sub after that, and then finally in 2005, uh, we did a tour, and I played flugelhorn um, for the um, for the tour of Florida, and then they offered me to be uh, have a, a regular position in the band, and so that's when it started. So I guess that's wow, 14 years ago now. Yeah. Wow, and that's uh, they're all cornets in that group, right? Yeah, cornets, uh, uh, flugelhorn, are basically the, you know, the trumpet like mm-hmm. B flat, E flat. Yeah. Right. Yep. Exactly. Uh, no trumpets generally. Sometimes uh, some of the guys just switch to trumpets for for some of the jazz stuff we do. But generally, yeah, yeah, we're playing all conical except for the uh, trombones. Yeah. So you know, I'm curious if uh, Morris Murphy came over, obviously with that uh, British brass band vibrato. Uh, and that influence, uh, they don't yeah. try, they don't continue that vibrato tradition, do they here? Now? Well, um, to some degree. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it depends cause you've got a real mixture of people in the band. I mean, you've got some folks who really have no brass band background and, and initially that was me. I mean, my only, I've played as a soloist with many brass bands, but as, as a, as a trumpeter, you know, not as like a cornet player. Um, and sometimes playing flugelhorn, but not really necessarily as a brass band flugelhorn, you know, but, um, on the other, then we got like Stephen Mead, who's one of the top British, you know, euphonium players and Lesnice and and tuba. So you have a handful of these great British brass band guys and some of us who've never done it. And others like, you know, Chris Jadis, who's a Salvation Army guy who has some of that background. So it's a real mixture and we don't necessarily match the same kind of vibrato style that you have in like the top British brands, but there's, there's a sense of that. I definitely play um, on the flugel book. I play the flugelhorn differently than I do either as a classical soloist or as a jazz player when I'm in the brass band, a different feel, a different vibrato, you know? Yeah. So Morris, so Morris, so yeah, I should say, yeah, you asked about Morris. Morris played, he wouldn't play cornet. 
he's like, man, I, I can't do that anymore. I'll mess up my trumpet playing. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, because um, he was still um, playing principal in the LSO at the time. And um, so he, but even when he played trumpet, you could hear the cornet in his playing. I remember I was very lucky just to, by a fluke to get him. I got to hear him do Mahler 5 at the Barbican in London, um, one of his final concerts for the LSO. And man, there was that beautiful vibrato, that very vocal style that, cornet players have so yeah he definitely brought a big boat dose of that into the brass band here, even though he was playing trumpet ironically hey i'm curious um if you ever got to meet Derek watkins you know it's it's kind of it's funny man i never actually met Derek. um i know his 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 widow and um and i got to meet her and his his granddaughter because she came they they came to one of my trumpet clinic things once and outside of London. And I heard so many stories from Morris about Derek and, and some other folks that I, I, he almost felt like a friend and that we, we never actually met in person, unfortunately, but uh, what a guy, he was obviously an incredible musician and you know, left a huge legacy behind. You know? Well, I've only gotten to know him, you know, thank goodness for uh, YouTube. Uh, yeah. just the videos. Uh, and of course, a lot of them are, are pretty dated from, you know, uh, uh, way back with the uh, MacArthur Park and uh, yeah. My Way and those things. But man, just some incredible, uh, incredible trumpet playing. Totally, but, totally. Uh, yeah. I want to talk a little bit too about uh, rhythm and brass. And, um, you know, of course, that's the first time I ever heard you was live here in Indianapolis. And this was Oh my gosh. Now this, we are going to go way back. Cause this would have been, this would have been the nineties, right? This would have been. Yeah, I joined, maybe, I joined the group in 95. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, and of course, Whiff Rudd, uh, yeah. was uh, in the group. Um, oh man, that was a great show. Uh, oh, thanks man. Um, and, uh, trying to remember there was one particular tune. I think it was Caravan. Uh, I just maybe it was Caravan, but there was one tune where, uh, oh no, I know what it was. It was a whole sequence of tunes where uh, it was like Wizard of Oz, right? Or Dark Side of the Moon. Did you guys do a big? Yeah, yeah. yeah we did. A, we did a take on that. It was like, uh, uh, what was it? Dave called the piece "Temporary Heartbeat." Yeah, and it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, kind of a <laughs> mashup of. It was awesome. Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz. And yeah. yeah, it was just straight from the twisted mind of Dave Gluckhart, <laughs> our drummer and uh, in-house composer and arranger. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was pretty pretty amazing with the, the create creative ideas that would that sp- that sprang from him. Well, and and uh, was a crazy crazy at heart was like a, there was a movie. Some oh, Wild at Heart. Wild at David Heart. Lynch, yeah, which had all these references to Wizard of Oz, which is why Dave brought it into. The picture there, he kind of tied that into the the larger, yeah, larger framework. None of none of the rest of us would have ever thought of this stuff, but Dave, <laughs> you know, that's how his brain works. Yeah. Oh man, I just you know I'd never seen anything like that. You know, I mean, Canadian brass have their thing, and uh, Empire had their thing, and you guys, man, you were you were completely. Uh, it was a left turn. Uh, I mean, and it was a great left turn, you know, it was like, uh, well, first of all, adding percussion, uh, to the group like that was great. But then to do the kind of arrangements, uh, that you did was really cool. Thanks, man. I I think, I think Dave was really the key. Dave Gluck to, you know, lots of times quintets have added, 
a drummer and percussionist, but they're more kind of auxiliary. And Dave was really kind of at the core of it. So we kind of took advantage of what everyone could do. So Dave would play um, any percussion we had at hand, and he played drum set. He would play melodica. He'd move over to piano sometimes. Our French hornist Alex Yuhan was a very good piano player, so he played a lot of piano. And, and um, you know, so we just kind of – we we try to build it around our personalities, and I think I think the groups that that have had musical success have done that in one way or another. You know, including Canadian and Empire. And now, you know, one of the most striking examples is Manozel Brass. You know, they've they've built this um, they've they've built this incredible reinvention of what brass music can be in a concert setting around their personalities. You know, it's like no one else could have done it exactly the way they've done it, and I think every group that finds some success finds some some way to kind of work with their personalities. It's never about like, you know, you can't try to be like quote unquote the best <laughs> group or something. It's it's all about doing what you do better than anyone else does, you know, and finding your own personal signature. And I think that's that's what helped us is we we were able to kind of capitalize on our own personalities and we're like, okay, this seems to be our thing. You know, we can't we can't play like Canadian or like Empire or like Manolo's, but we can do our thing in a way that maybe no one else can. That ended up being our, our goal, you know? I think it's, that's where a lot of groups, uh, I think uh, they try to get out there and do their own thing and uh, they falter. You know, it's like they try to be too much like the other groups. They they don't yeah. try to find their own niche. I, I think, yeah. And I think part of the reason for that is it's natural that, you know, we, I mean, when I was a kid, Canadian brass, I mean, those guys were heroes of mine. And then Empire Brass, the same thing. And and American Brass went to all these groups that were doing great stuff. But I think I think where groups fail sometimes is they, they kind of focus too much on a particular group. It's just like a, if you're a jazz musician and you transcribe only one trumpet player. And you're like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be basically be a second-rate Clifford Brown. Well, is that really what you want to be? I wanted to, you know, get what you can from Clifford, but then transcribe a hundred other people, and including non-trumpet players, and all of a sudden something more personal comes through, you know. And I think, I think we kind of succeeded with that, where it was like, you know, we we set the rules were like anything we can do, any music that we like, that we can make sound good. <laughs> let's try to play it, and we. We are aware that a lot of the music we wanted to do that was more of the rock or pop or even hip hop kind of influenced stuff is like lots of times brass groups can sound not so good at doing that. And we, 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 we made a kind of a pact with ourselves is like, unless there's some kind of added value to us doing it. Like if we can do a Beatles tune in a way that we think the Beatles will be like, hey, guys, that's kind of cool. We like that different take on it. Um Unless we can do that, we just decide let's let's just not do it. You know, if it's just going to sound like a a crappy brass take on a Beatles tune, uh, let's not do that to the music and to ourselves. <laughs> so we discarded a lot of stuff, man. We probably only programmed maybe maybe thirty percent of the stuff that we read because we're like, yeah, we don't sound good on this. You know, that's not. <laughs> well, that's you know, not, your audiences are probably glad that didn't happen either, right? Think, you know, they're thankful you didn't bring that out. Yeah. yeah. Well. <laughs> We we don't know though. It, what what's hard to say? I mean, because we heard all kinds of groups doing that kind of stuff all the time, and some of them having some success doing it by our own estimation. So we weren't necessarily certain that this this would reflect badly on us with our audiences. We just felt like we had to trust ourselves. You know, if we feel like yeah, this 
you know, if if we feel ashamed to do this, but other people like it, that's not good enough. We still shouldn't do it. You know, and that became kind of our, um, you know, that became our, our way of framing this. Is like, let's feel good. You know, we we got to feel good about it. And if it turns out nobody else cares and responds, maybe we'll stop doing it. But let's let, at least try it and see how how it goes. You know. So how the how the five of you guys find each other? Well, um, uh, for the guys. Um, Whiff and Alex and Charles Villarubia, who's uh, teaching tuba at uh, UT Austin, and um, let's see, and Dave, the percussionist, they were they were all in Dallas Brass together, and they all left on Mass in 1993, and at the same time they decided we're going to form a new thing, and they called it Rhythm of Brass, and they got Mark Kellogg from the uh, Rochester Phil and Eastman to play trombone and euphonium. And a guy named Bob Thompson, who was a really remarkable trumpet player, who's not really playing anymore. He's got he's really gotten into production and, and administration. But um, those guys played for a, a, a couple years, and then they decided they want to come off the road, and that's that's when they ended up uh, putting putting the word out for a new trumpet player and a new trombonist. And so I joined in uh, April of 1995, and Tom Brantley. Um, who teaches trombone at USF in Tampa? Uh, he joined in July that same year, and so it's been the same six guys. Wow! Uh, for a long time, now, yeah. Yeah. Have you guys done anything recently? No, I mean we never disbanded in any official sense, but everything just started. I think people were getting busy with their own projects and uh, dealing with with expanding families and that kind of stuff. And so the last time we actually played together, I want to say was maybe three and a half years ago. So by any practical measure, the, the group is, is probably finished. But um... So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's what, do, what do they call this, uh, a pop-up? What are they, in, the, in the middle of a mall somewhere, you guys are going to just uh, magically, uh, a mob, uh, what are they, shoot, what do they call Flash this? Flash mob. Flash mob, you guys will all show up. It could somewhere. happen, but it, it I, I got to say, I, I do appreciate I do appreciate the dumb and dumber quote. Thank you for... <laughs> Oh my gosh, man! Of all the movies I've showed my kids, that has been by far the biggest hit. They uh, they quote that thing regularly. It's pretty uh, amazing. Yeah, an amazing. Yeah. It's pretty brilliant. Oh. Pretty brilliant idiocy. Really. Well, and I have to tell you, they uh, they just uh, a couple of days ago wanted to uh, start watching Dumb and Dumber, or you know this, oh. this and it's horrible. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, and but they and, don't they didn't have Jim and Jeff in that one, right? It was no, like no, and it's a little too mature, a little too adult for them. Oh, and, I see. Uh, you know, they're they're nine and twelve, and I I cringe. So I, I oh I, geez, I, they actually turned it off. They saw that I was uncomfortable, so they oh, turned it off for me. That's considerate you know, so, of them. That's yeah, <laughs> Dad's turning red, so maybe they. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. <sighs> Yeah, uh, so I'm glad you got that reference there. That was pretty good. Yeah, so, man. No, I, I love yeah. that film. Yeah, that, that and <laughs> Elf and uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's good. That's good. So, <laughs> welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now back to the interview. Well, um, 
Yeah, rhythm and brass. Holy cow! You know, uh, I was trying to think. Uh, there was there was another CD that followed. Uh, you had done. Uh, oh, there's something that had. Uh, was it Mo Money Jungle? I think was that the name of a. Yeah. A that CD was, that uh, followed. I I think that was. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember if that was before or after. Sitting in an English garden, which was all the. You know the the Pink Floyd and Zeppelin and and um, Pink Floyd Zeppelin and Beatles stuff. Um, I feel like I feel like More Money Jungle was beforehand. It might have been done like in '96 or '97. That came out on Koch International when it was still a label. I don't even know if it exists anymore. But um, but yeah, that was that was a fun project too. You know, to to get a little tribute to Duke Ellington with with that album you know so you ever look back on work like that and think uh oh my gosh uh i i, I could have done so much better or or do you look back and think hey that was pretty good um i i generally don't really enjoy listening to recordings of myself uh i i sometimes i have a moment where i like a phrase but mostly it's i only like i i've done nine albums as a soloist or a band leader sort of my own name and i don't listen to any of them ever for enjoyment i i listen to them i there's always that process of putting them together which is so kind of stressful and by the end of it i hate every note i'd played you know and then then it comes out and you listen and you're like okay the cd actually doesn't skip and it you know printed properly so i listen to make sure it works and then i never listen again and it's just done, and it's better that way. I just, um, I hope other people think of it. I hope they hear my playing in a kind of light than I do, is generally how, how that goes. You yeah. Know? Well, this album you did, uh, was it just last year, this uh, Freedom of Movement? Yeah, Freedom of Movement is the, is the latest. Yep. Man, that was some great playing on there. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, in fact, um, I'm trying to remember, there was a Tony Plogue piece. Yeah. Uh, um, I can't remember the it, name of it. It's his, uh, Tony's, it's his third trumpet concerto, but he did it for brass band, his first major work for brass band. And, um, and it's, uh, inspired by, um, several of Kandinsky's improvisation paintings. Yeah. I, I think that might be my favorite piece off of that, uh, off of that recording. Uh, yeah, it's I a know great little piece, isn't it? I think there, uh, did you do the Vizzuti on there as well? Yep. That's on there. Uh, and, and of uh, course, yeah, I like that too. Uh, you know, I'm, but I'm just, uh, man, there's something about the plogue. I think it's the way he wrote, uh, between the trumpet and the band, uh, that just, uh, well, yeah. and the way it, the way the band played was really great too. Yeah. Those guys are great, man. It was, <clears throat> and, um, we had to record under difficult circumstances in this, uh, in the Orlando area, there was this, uh, they, they lined up a room, a great, a uh, little concert hall in a high school there that just beautiful acoustics, but there are all kinds of problems. Like there were thunderstorms. And so the power was going off and there was, and then this incredible, incredibly loud alarm would go off at random intervals and like blow a take here and there. So uh, <laughs> when I think back on that recording process, I'm, I'm amazed we got it together and, and I'm really impressed with the band. I mean, those guys are great, just great, great people and uh, really happy to get to work with them, you know. Now, is that the sort of thing where you're in a booth or where you uh right there with the band live? 
No, I was in that case. I was right there with the band live. I'll tell you the the crazy thing about that recording, Larry, is that every single piece had a different circumstance. So the there's four concertos recorded in four cities on three continents. So the Vizuti was recorded in Mesa, Arizona, with Pat Sheridan conducting uh, Salt River Brass. Uh, the Plogue was done. And, and that was done with the band live in the concert hall. And then I recorded my part in a studio in Richmond, trying, after it was edited, trying to get it to sound, trying to get the master sound of the concert hall. And then the plug was done all live with the band in the room, with me just sort of standing in front of the band, you know, aiming at a mic. And then the, um, oh, the weirdest of all was Andy Scott's piece because we essentially ran out of time. And when we saw it coming, um, because they were doing, they were doing like an entire album in a weekend, including like four concertos with different soloists. And so when we saw that we were, it was getting short, we laid down all the rest of the band stuff. And I'm there live in front of the band for like the first two thirds of the piece. And the last third of it is basically done in the studio in Richmond. Now that was a nightmare trying to get it to sound like it all worked, you know. And then and then the final piece with Jim Stevenson's concerto was done in Tokyo. And that was with um Tokyo Symphonic Winds in a studio, not even in a concert hall, but in a a bone dry studio. And then with me recording my part um in a studio in Richmond. So I felt worse for the guy who created the master. He we basically gave him a horrible Frankenstein of a of a project, but thankfully all the engineers on site everywhere, they, they did incredible work. And this guy, uh, Neil Brown, who's actually a trumpet player himself, um, did incredible work, basically bringing it all together. So it sounded like it belonged on one album, you know, so kudos to him for sure. You know? Well, engineers can do amazing things, these uh, things these days, you know, I yeah, mean, but- you, you know, you, you think there's no way you can do this without being there. Uh, and you know, you think there's no way you can you can create that magic uh, without you know sharing that same physical space. Um, but yeah, uh, but you but can it works. do it. If, yeah, if you if you kind of if you dig into the music enough and you can do it under the right circumstances and you have engineers who really know what they're doing, who really know how to use the tools, and have a musician's ears, because um, not all of them do. Some of them think a little more like. Um, they're they're a little more mechanical in how they think, and they miss things that musicians will catch. But thankfully, all the engineers I got to work with were were really fine musicians and really kind of nailed all that stuff, you know. And so I think it came together uh, came together pretty well in the in the end, you know. Uh, I remember talking to Roger Ingram uh, during his interview and talking about uh, the whole recording process and. Uh, talking about some engineers who are used to recording brass and some who are not and you know how they some have the have the ears for uh certain things you know and you yeah. you, you 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 really look forward to working with some guys and uh maybe not look forward to working with, with some others i may have to edit that out i don't want to throw anybody in under the bus on that but uh no but it's i mean it's true that you um I think it's something as simple as not understanding, for example, what a trumpet player is hoping for in the sound. You know what I mean? It's like you, when you're doing a sound check and you can hear that the 
engineer has all the highs turned all the way up so you sound like a tin can and that's their idea of what a trumpet's supposed to sound like and they don't understand it's like no actually I, I want as much richness and warmth to the sound as possible and, and probably every trumpet player no matter what style they play we all have different sounds but we'd also all want those qualities in our sound and an engineer who understands that and you can kind of get to that without you having to tweak it for them and kind of work on it is man, worth the weight in gold mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, did I see on Facebook uh, earlier today or, or yesterday, it was a, a picture or video of you and Jim Stevenson. Uh, he was at the piano. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was from a few years ago at a Rich Stolzel's Grand Ballet seminar thing. Yeah. And Jim wrote this piece. Um, Oh my goodness, I can't remember the name of the piece. Yeah, I, I guess I kind of wondered, uh, sometimes you wonder if uh, the composers are as good at the piano, uh, you know, when they write those parts, can they actually play them? No, Jim Jim is a terrible piano player. <laughs> oh, he is. And I say that because I think, I can say that because I think Jim is a freaking genius. I mean, he's... Oh, he's a terrific he's composer. One, he's, and he's one of the best musicians with incredible ears I've ever met. But he'll admit he'll admit he's 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 a total sad piano player. So he's sitting there playing like at the level basically, you know, of an eight year old who just started playing piano, but but with, you know, his sort of professional musician sense of time and stuff and so no, he can't play piano at all. So when he when he's done piano transcriptions, um, he's sought out the advice of good piano players to make that stuff work. But but for that kind of piece, he didn't really have to play, he could just kind of kind of play chords and keep it real simple. But no, Jim would be the, yeah, he would be the first to admit that he's, uh, there is one person who's much worse at the piano than he is though. And that is me. I, I play piano even worse than Jim. I can certify that right now. Well, yeah, I I call myself a keyboard cripple. You know, that's uh, I barely got through my piano proficiency and through both degrees, but uh, I think the sad thing with, with even if you do your proficiency and compared to real piano players, we tend to be rather ill-equipped, you know? So it's like, I can do certain things in jazz, but I remember my wife, Star, who's a real piano player, uh, trying to teach me some stuff a few years ago. And she just kind of threw up her hands in frustration. And I'm, cause I, you know, I'd break off and start playing the blues or something. She's like, no, 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 Hannon, Hannon. I'm like, I, I don't want to play Hannon. I don't want to play those exercises. So I was a terrible piano student, man. Really. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Thank goodness I practiced. I practiced the fundamentals on the trumpet, but I didn't want to do it on the piano. <laughs> and I paid for that with my horrible piano technique. You know, now I'm going to have to call Jim up and and get an interview with him, and then I'm going to ask him about that. Uh, and yeah, yeah, you can tell him I said it's a terrible piano yeah. player, but be sure to say that I said he was a genius too. Yeah, both are true. So yeah. You know, uh, you see him show up at trumpet conferences, uh, and uh, uh, he's actually come down to a couple of the orchestras I work with here in Indiana, and yeah. uh, we've we've done several of his pieces, and the Compose Yourself, which is a really cool uh, uh, educational piece. Yeah. Uh, audiences, you know, the, the young audiences really dig it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, you know, he's, I th- I think he's actually conducted uh, one of the pieces uh, that he's done as well. So he he might not be great at the piano, but he's actually a pretty good conductor. He's which a great is... conductor, I think. I, I mean, he's he's not, you know, super technique with the stick kind of thing, but in terms of ears and knowing how the music is supposed to go, he's amazing. He conducted um, 
his own concerto in in Tokyo, and I'm in, I'm there watching the score in the producer's chair, and he's catching stuff as he's conducting it that I'm not even hearing. And I was proud of my ears before that. I was like, damn, Sam is really on this. So it's like, yeah, he's totally equipped to be a really first-rate conductor because of his musicianship. Mm-hmm. What do you got lined up uh, down the road? Well, thankfully, um, I've got a few weeks at home, and um, I'm going to do a recital um, here at, at home, which I, I don't always get to do every year, so I'm happy to do that. Um, I think it's going to be on October 1st, working with some VCU colleagues. And I might be at Shenandoah right around that time as well. Mary Bowden has invited me to come uh, um, do a recital there, and hopefully we'll play together because Mary's a great friend. And and I, I've got mixed feelings about her being at Shenandoah because she's such a great teacher. She's going to make it even harder for us to recruit at VCU being down the road. But um, but she's awesome, and it's great having her in the neighborhood, you know, and then, um, I've got the, um, trumpet festival of the Midwest, uh, in early October, they're doing a tribute to Vince DiMartino and I'm, I'm out there coming to play to help, help celebrate. Uh, and there it is. There it is. Yeah. It, you just said it. And I, and I told, I texted Vince, uh, a week or two ago. I said, his name comes up in every single podcast interview and yep. there it was right there. So there, it just happened again. So, There's always a Vince moment. I mean, we we can't escape them when we don't want to. Yeah. So, and, and I, I apologize, I interrupted you, but okay. So, no, no, that's all right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's all good. So, so I'm what's, doing that. Uh, what's the date on that? That's like um, the sixth and seventh of October. And then I've got to do a workshop in Chicago the following weekend, a Yamaha sponsored thing, and there might be a couple other dates around that. And then. What the heck? I'm going to Calgary the following weekend, uh, and I'm home for like two days, and I go to Australia for, uh, I guess it's almost two weeks. Sydney Are you doing that Australasian Academy with John uh, Foster? No, not not this year. John and I talked about I, I did it back in 2006. 17 i think and we talked about doing it next year i'm I'm not positive that'll be possible but um but it's it's a wonderful academy it's just like a week-long boot camp for trumpet which, which may sound terrible but it actually was a blast it was a lot of fun and a great learning experience um, but no i'm going to be in residence at the sydney conservatory uh for about nine days or so and then do a uh, um a couple of concerts i guess maybe about four concerts when I'm down there in Sydney, Newcastle, and um, geez, somewhere else. And um, yeah, down in Melbourne, we're doing a work with Yamaha Australia. And what's up after that? I think soon thereafter, we got Thanksgiving break. And then, no, no, actually I've got, shoot, I think it's Susquehanna. No, I'm, I'm confused. There's a college, there's a college in Pennsylvania I have to go to shortly after that. Sorry, it's all running together here, man. I don't know how and you then, keep all this uh, stuff straight, man. <laughs> uh, well, clearly, I'm not keeping it very straight. I'm getting, I'm getting rather confused. But uh, then we got Thanksgiving break. We get a week off this this year from BCU, so I might uh, start. I might travel somewhere or something, and then get back a couple of days later. I'll be out with Brass Mountain Battle Creek. So you do uh, you do you uh, choose all the rep well in advance for this? And uh, I I know you like to memorize stuff. Uh, is this stuff that you've had under your fingertips for a while? 
Uh, I mean, it varies a bit. It's it's um when I'm playing as a soloist, um, I always suggest rap, and if someone wants me to do uh, something out of my wheelhouse, then I, you know I'm willing to do it under the right circumstances. The thing I try to avoid is I'm, you know, I've I've played all the standard rep, and um, I I'm not all that interested in playing it anymore, frankly, unless it's paired with some other stuff that I'm find more interesting, you know? So I've been lucky to have, what do you mean by standard? What would you consider the standard stuff? Oh, you know, Haydn, Arvitunian, any any of the stuff that we started playing when we were like 13 or 14 years old. It's like, um, you know, I still love that music, but it's like, I feel like if you're going to hire me to play, there should, there's, there, there should be particular reasons and it's probably because of the rep I play. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Not not to play Arvatunian, say necessarily, you know. And so it's um, and so a, a lot of the pieces that have been written, uh, more specifically for me, I have a closer relationship with, of course. And so I'm, I try to program that stuff when I can. And a lot of it, yeah, I try to get it memorized as soon as I can. And some of it comes quickly, some of it not so quickly. But uh, I always feel more comfortable when I'm when I'm able to play without looking at music. Yeah. Um, any, any new rep being commissioned for yourself? Uh, yeah, actually, um, I'm meeting with, um, a friend tomorrow named Trey Pollard, who's a guitar player on, um, one of my more recent albums, uh, blue shift album. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a wonderful jazz guitarist and he's a really killing composer. And I was, I was really pleased that he approached me about writing a new concerto for me. And um, we're actually having a meeting tomorrow morning to um, at his studio to talk about the form. And thankfully, we've had some discussions with uh, Richmond Symphony, maybe about doing the world premiere. Oh, so very cool. That that's not a done deal yet. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag and promise something that uh, they you know we haven't signed a contract. But uh, this conversation never a, happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we yeah. are having a meeting with them uh, uh, next month about that. So that's that's promising. And and also uh, Dana Wilson. Um, is um, you know he wrote um, his second trumpet concerto for me with string orchestra. Uh, one thing that's pretty cool is you just he just arranged that for brass band, which is going to be totally badass, I think. And he also he wants to write a new concerto. We're talking about getting that set up with some some kind of a consortium with wind ensembles for what's essentially a jazz concerto. And so that um, hopefully maybe sometime next year. Uh, will be premiered. I'm going to see if maybe one of the conferences or competitions, maybe we'll get a chance to to do the premiere there. We'll see. We'll see what happens. That that's all kind of the early stages. So in terms of new works, those those two are kind of the ones on the on the front burner right now. Man, I can't wait to hear it. I know it's going to be killer whenever it happens. Yeah, cool, man. Thanks. Yeah, yeah these uh, both these guys are, are beautiful writers, and it's going to be a a real uh, privilege getting mm-hmm. to work on this music with them. You know? Yeah. Listen, uh, I, I appreciate you redoing this. Uh, you know, I think I told you the, uh, that original interview got corrupted. I, I have yeah. like a thousand six second uh, segments uh, that I, <laughs> you know, if I could reconstruct that file, uh, <laughs> uh, 
but there's no way I could could do that. But uh, I, I really appreciate you uh, giving me some more time to to sit and chat. And this this has been great. I, I could I yeah. really appreciate it. Uh, you know, anytime For you're sure. here in Indianapolis, uh, if you you know text me and say, "Hey, I'm here. I'd I'd love to." Uh, buy you a beer and uh you know sit and hang yeah. for a little bit um, i would love that man and i and I, I appreciate your your interest in this and and it's it's my pleasure and honor to to do the interview once or twice man or more so it's all it's all good and i i, I appreciate you kind of staying on top of it, man thanks for that so yeah, i love what you do and uh safe travels enjoy your enjoy your downtime while you got it and yeah. uh, thanks again. Hey, I'm going to ask you this. I, I usually ask uh, people now at the beginning of these interviews, and I've gotten yeah. some pretty hilarious responses. Um, okay. uh, Studio HFL, right? That's the name of the podcast. What's okay. the HFL stand for? Higher, faster, louder. Yeah, okay. So you, you got that. You know that. But you, <laughs> if you ever get to the inter, uh, listen to the interviews, you'll be surprised at, at, at what uh, – <laughs> uh, People don't know. Oh, they I don't mean, know. They, know you're, they don't know. You're a trumpet player, man. They what else could it be? Uh, just, you know what? Go to the beginning of Jeffrey Kernow's and, and listen to the beginning <laughs> of his. And, uh, you, He's you, a trumpet player too, man. Yeah, oh. I know, right? They're right. all trumpet players. Right? They're all yeah, trumpet players. Know. Yeah. They, it's all about higher, faster, louder. <laughs> I think Ryan Anthony even uh, even messed uh, messed that one up. The so. problem is those guys are too good of a musician to right? think that right? we should be ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you nailed it. So, Rex, you're the best. I appreciate you it. You too, man. Thanks, right. thanks a lot, Larry. Take care, man. All right. See you later. All right. See Bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.